You are listening to the Zen Cop Podcast. Guys, welcome back. Macro and Zen Cop here. Thank you for being here and thank you for listening. This is episode 19 of the Zen Cop Podcast. If you are listening on YouTube, please don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you are a Apple or Spotify listener, please don't forget to drop a rating below at the end of the show. I hope everyone had a nice Thanksgiving. And for those of you who were working, I hope you got to spend a little bit of time with your family, or maybe you're making up for that uh, today or yesterday. The holidays are very important, and so is spending time with family. So I hope all of you got to do that in some way, shape, or form. The creation of this podcast and technically the blog was what came first. And before the blog, I actually was just doing a lot of typing on my laptop. But the reason why I created all of this and the reason why I am still moving forward with all of this stemmed from a, a very scary and very horrible day in July of 2020. And at the same time, that was one of the best days of my life. And I know that sounds somewhat contradictory, but I think it will all make sense one day when I choose to share that experience and story with all of you. And I just kind of want to preface this episode with the simple fact that without challenge and without adversity, we wouldn't really have much of a story to tell. And more importantly, we wouldn't have much of a life to live, or even more importantly, we wouldn't be of much value to those around us. The lessons that adversity gives us are without question the most valuable and will oftentimes lead to a lot of clarity and understanding that won't necessarily be visible uh, or available in the immediate present because the challenge and the frustration will eclipse all of that by a very large margin. And what we are going to talk about today is the human brain and how it can be our best friend in the fight to maintain some kind of mental survival in life. And one thing that is very important for everyone to understand out of the gate is that trauma is totally and completely subjective. When it comes to things that uh, make us upset or cause pain, there will be some things that will be linear, but for the most part, everyone is going to have their own individual reactions to pain, whether emotional or physical. In law enforcement specifically, we are we are very quick to judge and we do it all the time, whether consciously or subconsciously, but we all know the employee whose entire career was was getting hurt and then simply being a name on a seniority list that hasn't, you know, been to a briefing in three years. And then there's also people who actually get hurt. And even the people who are still hurt, they still get the cynical comments from their peers. And that's just cop banter. It's almost as if cops, you know, we, we sort of have to be in a, a, you know, a leg cast or a halo for our, our coworkers to truly believe that we can't come into work. And if you've done this job for any amount of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, the even more questionable reason or skepticism comes from when someone is seeking treatment or time off because of stress or a medical reason that surrounds the brain. If you thought your peers would judge you for a broken leg, it'll be tenfold for anything involving a broken brain. But just like the leg, you can heal your brain if you do the work that comes with it. I will make the argument that there are some scenarios that are completely ridiculous and the individual in question uh, needs to be held accountable and put their big boy or big girl pants on. But I'm not talking about someone feeling down because they had to cancel a family trip or maybe they didn't get the new assignment that they were hoping for. I'm talking about the really intense stuff that really leaves a scar on the brain, the things that we can't unsee because the incident itself was so prevalent or so horrible that our brain decided to take that core memory and keep it as close as possible because that memory in theory would keep us safe in the future and understanding how the brain works and why that, uh, 
why why it works in mysterious ways is is important in order for us to understand why it offers us some of the best protection we could ever ask for, especially protection in the future. And sometimes people don't understand why some of the most graphic and horrific of events will be stored as a priority versus a scenario that was that was rather enjoyable and something that you would prefer to remember very vividly. And your brain will acknowledge that memory, but it doesn't store it in a place where it's easy to access. The brain needs to retain certain events in order to help us stay alive and have a, a physical response to a stressful scenario. And the response to stress is actually uh, where all this begins inside the brain. When someone has some type of danger approach them, and for this scenario, let's say the danger is physical, like an approaching car at a high rate of speed, or maybe you're out on the walking trail and you see a mountain lion. The eyes uh, or ears are usually both. They send that information to a part of the brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala is the portion of the brain that sort of takes care of all of our emotional processing requests. And it basically captures the images and sounds of the car or the mountain lion, and it instantly sends a distress signal to another part of the brain called the hypothalamus. This is the area of the brain that sort of functions like a command center for the body and communicates with your nervous system. So now that you have the you know known information about the threat, you now have the ability to defend yourself or you know, move to safety, essentially evasive action of some kind. And all of this is happening while adrenaline starts to circulate throughout your body and that, that forces certain physical reactions uh, that will help you survive. The heart starts to beat faster. This is in an effort to push blood into your muscles, your heart and other vital organs uh, that you will need in order to survive your pulse rate, and your blood pressure go up, you start to breathe more rapidly. A lot of these smaller airways in your lungs open up really, really wide to allow as much oxygen as possible with every breath you take. With the heavy breathing, extra oxygen is then sent to your brain, and that's going to increase your alertness, uh, your sight, your hearing, and other senses become much, much sharper. And all while this is going on, the adrenaline that is being released um, within your bloodstream also triggers the release of glucose and fats, and those nutrients enter your bloodstream and basically supply energy to all of the parts of the body that need it. All of this happening in a matter of seconds and simply stated, it takes a lot of moving parts when it comes to our ability, our natural ability to try and defend ourselves. And as a result of all that work, your brain will more than likely remember a traumatic event and in great detail. If you've ever been in a car accident or in a scenario where something very catastrophic happened and very suddenly, one of the most consistent things that people remember is what they heard or what they were saying combined with what they saw just a couple of seconds before the incident took place. The brain retains any auditory and visual details because it naturally wants to catalog that event properly. That's why so many times when we hear people talk about certain details not being remembered, but they can remember hearing or seeing something very specific and quite literally describe it to you with a very large amount of detail, that's because the brain retains that, uh, knowing that that information could be used to help us again in the future. And while all of this is, is a very effective defense mechanism, if it happens consistently or even semi-consistently, it starts to do more harm than good. And this is something that a lot of cops are very familiar with, or at least they should be, and if they are not, uh, you know, they, they run the risk of getting that introduction via stroke or heart attack. And sometimes at, at very young ages because they have not dealt with their stress properly. Um, it's one of those things where if you don't know it's happening, uh, you're not going to know how to address it. And most of these things that happen, we can feel the heart rate go up and, and we can feel certain type of physical reactions. But 
things like having high blood pressure and all that stuff, they really won't show much of a physical reaction until it's almost too late to, to really do some, some major lifestyle changes to address it. Uh, the scary part is though, if you think back to all of the things that used to scare you or made you nervous, and you think about how those things affect you today, it's probably night and day and they quite literally may not even affect you anymore, but the internal stress reaction is always going to be there regardless of how you feel externally. If we consider all of the things that we do every day and how some of them are going to be extremely stressful, yet we don't feel any of it. All of that internal stress is extremely toxic for the body. There have been multiple studies on this and ultimately the average person will experience an, uh, an adrenaline and cortisol dump a few times a year uh, for the average person. That could be you know, a car accident, some traumatic event, um, but cops specifically will experience that same level of cortisol and adrenaline dumps multiple times a shift while at work. This is why it's very important to acknowledge that it exists even if you don't feel it. The stress is still there and so is the cortisol and so is the adrenaline and everything else that's going to poison our body, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Now, going back to the topic of, of trauma, and specifically trauma being subjective, that's going to be a topic that introduces a lot of argument. And that's mainly because there's a large group of people who feel that it's essentially not real or their bars are set so high that they don't have the ability to even acknowledge that trauma exists and all the other things that come with it. Basically the, the mentality of suck it up and what you're feeling isn't justifiable. And just like any opinion, I try to look at everyone's viewpoint with a neutral perspective and especially what they themselves have experienced in order to support their opinion. And I can totally understand how there are a lot of people who feel that way. I understand that because there are a lot of people who use self-pity and everything else under the sun to try and gain some type of sympathy or attention or whatever the case may be. On that note, I also feel like there are a lot of terms that are overused as of late, PTSD being one of them. I feel like that as a society, we have given that term a, a very broad brush, too broad actually, and to the point of allowing society, especially kids, to sort of give themselves an out or a reason not to be able to grow and move forward and rather uh, just use that label as a means for their, their permanent and sustained failure. And I do feel that there needs to be a line drawn in the sand for what we choose to acknowledge as rational versus irrational. But that also contradicts the concept of trauma being subjective. So for purposes of, of what I'm talking about today, I will say this, it's not my job or anyone else's job for that matter to, to judge someone uh, based on what they feel is a traumatic event. However, if we remove accountability overall, then we are all setting ourselves up for failure before the journey even begins. Personally, I would, uh, I would expect anyone in my circle of friends and family to, to slap me across the face and tell me to get my crap together if they, if they knew I was capable of doing so. And truly seeing the difference of, you know, am I just feeling sorry for myself or there's something actually really wrong with him right now? At the same time, I would also expect anyone in my circle or uh, you know, family and friends to, to sit down next to me, put a hand on my shoulder and ask if they could help if they saw that it was a much larger problem. Again, my friends and family know what I'm capable of and I would expect them to hold me to it, especially if it's a scenario where they know I'm capable of defeating whatever challenge is currently holding me down. That being said, without all the information, especially if I don't know this person on a personal level, who am I to judge anyone for anything without knowing what happened to their brain? And with cops specifically, we are natural problem solvers. So our ability to sift through things pretty quickly is a blessing and, and also a curse. We are challenged uh, socially throughout our work week. And in doing so, uh, we become just these natural problem solvers. And we're very, very good at it. As cops, we 
are literally dealing with social puzzles all day long and finding resolutions for them as quickly as possible, one day after the other, shift after shift. And that is literally the bread and butter of what we do. And we do it so much that when we are introduced to a social problem outside of work, we tend to solve the problem very quickly, too quickly, actually. Uh, consider this uh, scenario. Has your significant other ever complained about something? Uh, maybe it's about work or an issue they're having with a friend, and they aren't even finished telling you the story and the problem that they're dealing with, and you respond with a solution that ultimately solves that problem indefinitely. And the other half of that conversation looks at you like they want to punch you in the face. And sometimes it's not the answer they're looking for, but maybe they were just trying to vent or sometimes they are looking for the answer and it was, it was almost too easy for you to obtain it. Either way you slice it, it's important to understand that not everyone is going to receive it the way that you intended. And that's one of the Achilles heels of, of being a cop where, you know, we are going to deal with this, this stuff, uh, you know, day after day and in a, in a public service capacity, you are going to deal with problem solving on a social level exclusively. And sometimes it gets highlighted as a negative, which is kind of ironic because it just proves that you're really good at your job. You know, who would be upset if their, you know, their neighbor was an auto mechanic and was able to fix your brakes in the you know convenience of his garage across the street. Or if your brother or sister was a chef and always cooked good food in one year and for Christmas, you completely flip out because the pot roast was just too perfect. Odd comparisons, I get it. But it is truly a skill that we just sort of naturally obtain over time. And, uh, you know, sometimes very quickly in the beginning of our careers and the, the mastery comes from years and years and years of using our brains for social scenarios that usually involve some type of conflict and ideally a resolution at the departure. It's a form of, I guess, mental gymnastics that unless you are a part of, you know, some form of public service, you rarely get introduced to it, especially talking with complete strangers. And in public service, we do it so much that we become these problem solvers that more times than not will get utilized among family or friends when others cannot find a means to an end or just some type of solution. Now, going back to the concept of what our brain chooses to retain and applying that to the things that we see every day on the street, it also introduces a very unhealthy level of hyper-awareness. As my kids got older and became more active, I started to notice that as a parent, I did things very differently compared to other parents. And of course, there's a, a big generation gap and there's things that we did in the 80s and 90s that were completely unsafe. And I could say the same thing for my parents' childhoods in the 50s and 60s. It's just the way the world works. We live and we learn. And I'm sure my children's children, they're, they're going to have a very different childhood from what my kids had. But as my kids started to get older and they developed relationships with other kids, I noticed that there was a lot more freedom and also a lot more of what I would consider to be very dangerous behavior that my kids were not allowed to do. Uh, for example, uh, my kids love riding their bikes and they've always worn helmets, but my oldest rides his bike to school now. He's been doing that for about a year. And I feel like he's one of the only kids that actually wears a helmet. And I made it very clear to him that if I ever found out that he didn't wear his helmet or he strapped it to his handlebars on his way to school, the bike would be gone. And I get it. Nobody wants to wear a helmet. It's, you know, the cool kids aren't doing that and it messes up your hair. But all I can think of is him getting hit by a car or even crashing and just smacking his head on the pavement and being brain dead. And why do I think of all of these things? Well, because I've seen them happen in real life and I've seen dead kids in real life and I've seen kids that have gotten hit by cars. I've seen kids that were in freak accidents just riding around town. And even when I was in high school, I got hit by a car and broke my left leg pretty bad. Uh, so all of those things sort of compound the, the paranoia and that paranoia is not unwarranted, especially if you have, you know, seen those things and you have those core memories that your brain is holding on to. 
And you can ask any cop, uh, for another example, just involving drowning, you can ask any cop who's been to a juvenile drowning. They will tell you that to this day, they still get weird when their kids go anywhere near water. And you will be the first on scene for those calls. A lot of people don't understand that the beat cop, the cop pushing the patrol car, they're the ones who will more times than not be the very first person and usually the only one there. The fire department and all their friends will come much, much later. The cop will be there for the freshest and nastiest part of that incident. So when there's a nexus to any of that, that can be made relatable, uh, which is quite literally almost every call we go to, how can we not retain some type of core memory that will make its way back home and relatable to our friends and family? It's quite literally your mind's way of trying to protect your loved ones. It's just a really, really, really high level of exposure. And it doesn't make you a bad parent if you do it right. I've never been one to say the words because I said so to my kids. And I'm not talking about cleaning your room or eating dinner or taking a shower. I'm talking about telling my kids why they can't do certain things or why they must do certain things a certain way. I will always take the time to explain why so that they understand the totality behind my reasoning and my request, which at the time they may seem crazy. And when I explained to my son why he needed to wear a helmet, it wasn't because it was a question of his skill or awareness. It was because half the people driving cars on the road are idiots and have no business being behind the wheel of a vehicle. And that is the reason why he's wearing a helmet. That combined with you know, it being a, a safety concern overall, it just ensures, you know, some level of survival. And I think he actually heard my words and they made sense. And maybe because of that explanation, he's also a little bit more careful when he's riding around town. I think if most cops understood how and why the brain works the way it does, and more so if they were able to explain that to their spouse or their kids, a lot of it would make more sense. And just like anything with explanation comes understanding. If there's an explanation as to why you feel a certain way, maybe that incident or trauma is now a lot more understandable by the other party who's listening. Uh, subjectivity, especially with mental health, is a one-way street if the other half of that relationship or conversation doesn't understand why or at least have some type of understanding as to how they can help. And if we introduce the concept of communication, especially when it comes to something that was you know, essentially a scenario that involved a portion of your brain either having to make a decision or to simply process an event, you would be pleasantly surprised at the results. Um, and I can't say that enough about intimate relationships, especially marriages, that if there was more communication, open communication and honest communication, your brain is going to purge the negative association naturally. And what was a, a very difficult thing to talk about will slowly become something that is very easy to talk about. And before you know it, it actually becomes a memory that subconsciously gets moved to an area that is of less importance. It doesn't invalidate the incident or take away from what you experience, but now your brain gets to essentially put it somewhere else, maybe a little bit deeper and a little bit farther away from where it used to be. And if you put more of an effort into, I guess, call it organizing your brain, and that could be a through a variety of, of outlets to include therapy, but the one that's free and the one that's always readily available to you is having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with yourself, literally or figuratively. You can always be honest with yourself. And that can be such an effective tool for processing just about anything. And when you finally get the courage to open up and talk to another person about it, you will be pleasantly surprised with the results. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to like and subscribe if you're on YouTube. And if you're on Spotify or an Apple listener, please don't forget to drop a rating below. Next week, if it works out, I will, do an, uh, I will be doing a very fun podcast with a really fun group of guys. Hopefully the timing works out and we can make it happen. I have noticed that episodes with guests on the show tend to be the most popular. So I'm going to do my best to make sure I, I rotate some people onto the show 
and meet you there so we can get some good content out here. Uh, guys, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you back again here next week. Until then, be safe.